Our psalm of the day is Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Our gospel lesson this morning is found in Luke chapter 7. We're reading verses 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And, began, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. God. Let's pray. Father, we do look to you for help in understanding these words, this parable of our Lord Jesus, its application to our lives. Work in us by your Spirit. It's in your light that we see light. So speak, Lord. 
for your servants are listening. Amen. In Marilyn Robinson's novel, Home, she tells the story of Jack Balton, who is the son of a Presbyterian pastor who manages to make a mess of his life. In scandal after scandal, he embarrasses his Presbyterian father. He has a child out of wedlock while he is in high school. He then disappears from the town out of his own sense of shame. He truly disappeared. No one knew where he was. News began to trickle back that he had another child and that he was with another woman out of wedlock, and she was a preacher's daughter as well. He landed himself in prison eventually, but then as his father's life drew near to a close, he decided to return to his small town in Iowa. His sister, Glory, who had not seen him in years, was excited to see him, and she actually bought a baseball glove. She wanted him to have something to do. His father's best friend was a man named John Ames, also a pastor, and he had a young son late in life. And so Glory bought the baseball mitt so that Jack would be able to go out and throw ball with the young boy. One afternoon, Jack came bounding down the stairs with the baseball glove in hand, and he told Glory that he was going out to throw ball with the little boy. He stepped out onto the porch, though, and he paused. Glory could tell he was thinking. He comes back into the house. He puts the glove down on the kitchen table, and this is what he says. No, I'm disreputable. I forget that from time to time. The good reverend wouldn't approve. It is the central fact of my existence. I am disreputable. And the story displays the power of guilt. The sense of shame that can accumulate inside of the human heart over time as failure after failure builds up. As we reflect on our shortcomings, we can have such an incredible weight bear down on our conscience, like Jack Balton, that we tell ourselves the story that we are disreputable, we're not worthy, we're full of shame. But what we also see with Jack, it's not only that our guilt and our shame bears down on us with a particular weight, it doesn't just simply drag our conscience down but also it paralyzes us. And it keeps us from realizing a new and different future. You see, for Jack, his guilt and his shame anchored him in the past, and then he lived in perpetual cycles of failure. And this is what guilt and shame, unconfessed, unrelieved by the grace of God, does to us. It eats us alive and keeps us locked into a position. And in Luke 7... Jesus encounters a woman in a very similar position. The Bible tells us rather politely that she was a woman of the city. This was simply a way of saying that she was a prostitute. She was one who sold her body to men in order to provide for herself. It was not an advantageous situation for her personally. She probably hated herself for it, but it was known who she was. There was no hiding her reputation. And yet Jesus frees her from her burden. 
He speaks words of absolution to her. They had to be the four most precious words she had probably ever heard. Your sins are forgiven. Imagine hearing that after a lifetime of guilt and shame, a lifetime of rejection. But not everyone there that day who heard those words was equally excited by them. Simon, a Pharisee, found this disgusting. He was the host of the dinner party where this took place. And it's through this interaction that Jesus has with the Pharisee Simon that Jesus wants to teach us something. Specifically, he teaches us two things about how we interact with sin, with shame, and with failure. First is this. Jesus is telling us that we must learn and relearn how to calculate debt properly. Jesus goes to the Pharisee's house. He is seated at the table, and the scene would have worked something like this. The principal guest around the table were there for theological discussions. The Pharisees were known for these types of parties. Jesus was probably there somewhat on trial, and around the table there would be other people from the town or village, and they would be listening in. They would not be allowed to participate, but they would listen to those pontificate around the table. A woman comes in, this prostitute, and she begins to touch Jesus. Simon immediately began to judge both the woman and Jesus. And so Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Listen again to the parable. It's very brief. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Neither of these debts by ancient standards were small. 500 denarii was completely unpayable. That was 500 days wages, and this would have been completely paralyzing. But 50 also would have been difficult to make up. But note what Jesus says, that neither debtor was able to pay. That they were both in the hole. There was no payment plan in which they could consolidate the debt and make it manageable. It just wasn't going to happen. They couldn't pay it off. That in that time and in that space, the only options were enslavement or prison. Unable to pay. No way to make it manageable. Here is the the two debtors, empty-handed with nothing to commend themselves. No way to pay down the balance. But notice what the money lender does. Jesus says he canceled the debt of both. And our translation from the original doesn't do all the favors to the word cancellation because that word also carries the sense of a free gift. That is that freely and graciously the money lender forgave the debt. That he didn't do it out of obligation. He didn't do it to somehow gain a benefit for himself. But rather he absorbed the cost himself and freely forgave and remitted the debt allowing the two debtors to go free. And Jesus asked the question, now which of them will love him more? Simon answered correctly. He said the one who was forgiven more. And Jesus is saying this, is that the one who perceives he has little sin 
will be very little thankful and very little loving towards God. But the one who knows the enormous burden of his sin and that there is no loan that he could float to pay it off will be extremely thankful before God and celebrate and rejoice. And the bottom line, the inescapable truth, was that both debtors were enslaved to that debt. Neither one could pay. It had overwhelmed them. But Jesus knew that Simon didn't see things this way. That there was some hardness in his heart. And friends, this is what happens so often to us in the church. Is that we can simply be lulled off by our debt. That we fail to calculate it. We don't tabulate it properly. We lose sight of our sins and what that means in front of God. And when we lose sight of our debt, there is one particular thing that begins to happen. We begin to focus on the debts of others. This is what had happened to Simon. Not looking at his own debt, he was looking at the debt of this woman. Jesus says her sins were many. He doesn't whitewash that. He doesn't try to make it better than it actually was. He recognized that her sins were many. But Jesus knew that Simon had completely lost sight of his unpayable debt. And so focusing on the debt of others, we grow cold. We grow hard. We grow bitter. We grow superior. And we love little. This is what Jesus was diagnosing about Simon. And he's trying to point out to him a type of hypocrisy that is spiritually fatal. Several years ago, when Melissa and I lived in Arlington, Virginia, we lived about a mile off the back of the Arlington National Cemetery. There was a small neighborhood street, 2nd Street South, that ran into the back of the cemetery. And 2nd Street South, during certain times of the year, especially when there was construction, was used as a cut-through by many people. Our neighborhood was called Arlington Heights, and our neighborhood president became concerned during one particular fall when there was a lot of road construction about people speeding down 2nd Street. She was particularly animated by those people from Maryland. When you live in Virginia, you blame everything on the residents of Maryland. Particularly concerned about the people from Maryland who were cutting down 2nd Street and speeding, putting our children at danger. At the Neighborhood Association meeting, she called the chief of police in where he was excoriated. The ground was burned about how the Arlington County Sheriff's Department was doing nothing about the speeding on 2nd Street. So a traffic calming procedure was put into place. That's the fancy new term for speed trap. All along 2nd Street. Several months after the speed trap, the sheriff returned to the Neighborhood Association meeting, and he gave the report of the findings. There were several hundred tickets actually given that he confirmed there was a speeding problem on 2nd Street. 80% of the tickets issued, though, belonged to people who lived in the neighborhood Arlington Heights. And then he very gladly reported that one of the recipients of those tickets was the Neighborhood Association president. And this is what happens to us. This is the hypocrisy that Simon has fallen into as well. 
that he can't see his own sin, that he can't see his own debt, that he can't calculate it correctly. He's so worried about the people in Maryland cutting through. And friends, Jesus is pleading with us that we get a proper estimate and understanding of our debt and its unpayability, our inability to come up with anything that could work it off, that there is no way. And this also is one of the keys to the vitalized spiritual life. The way that Jesus is telling the story and drawing us into it is that acknowledging our personal debt and giving thanks to God for removing it is one of the foundational pieces of a Christian life that perseveres and endures. It's not losing our first love by not losing the fact that we've been loved, that we've been reconciled to God, that we've been redeemed, that is nothing that we could work out on our own. The Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians in chapter 3, he prays for the Ephesian church. And his prayer is interesting. He asks that they would be strengthened by the Spirit. And strengthened to know something specifically. It is the height and width and the breadth and the depth of the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ that surpasses knowledge. And Paul's saying that we have to be strengthened by God to comprehend and further comprehend, to learn and to relearn the depth of God's love for us in Jesus. And what he's pointing us to is that, that this is the reality. This is one of the foundational stones of the Christian walk and Christian life. And so as a church, as a people gathered around Jesus, we must constantly learn and relearn how to calculate our debt and to stay focused there on our debt and not turn to the debts of others. And as Jesus progresses along in the, in the story, we see that he also wants to teach us one other thing. Because Jesus is telling us that we are to focus as forgiven debtors on offering ourselves to God. Not only are we to focus on our debts and the fact that he alone can remit them, that he can remove them, but as those forgiven debtors, we are to focus on then offering ourselves to God and what that looks like for the spiritual life. This woman obviously has some insight into who Jesus is. She placed her faith in him. Jesus announces that your faith has saved you. She has entrusted herself to him knowing that he is the money lender who has absorbed the payment for the debt. He's absorbed it into himself and he would absorb it into his body in his death on the cross. That's how we understand this. And she's looking in faith to Jesus, the one who can forgive sins, and she's entrusting herself to him. And then loved by Christ, she turns to love Christ. And it's essential that we always keep that order in perspective. That the imperative command to love God always follows the great love of God revealed to us in Christ. And this is love that the Apostle John says. Not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is the way biblical faith works. And this woman, knowing the great love of Jesus, she brought water for cleansing. She brought a kiss of greeting. And she brought oil for anointing. 
Now, it's easy for us to miss some of the cultural things going on. When Jesus was invited to Simon's house, Simon was expected as the host to provide water, oil, and also a kiss of greeting. Jesus acknowledges that Simon provided none of those. And Simon, in doing that, was implicitly critiquing Jesus. He was either intentionally disrespecting him, or he was communicating that Jesus was his social inferior. In some way, it was a slight, and it was a distancing himself from Jesus. And this woman steps into that void, and she begins to water Jesus' feet, kiss Jesus' feet, and anoint Jesus' feet. Simon was expected to do those things to Jesus' head. And if you can use your imagination for a minute, you can imagine what feet would have been in the ancient world. They're nasty enough today. Awful. And here she is lavishing her tears, her hair, her oil, her kisses on Jesus' feet. Simon didn't get it. He didn't understand the situation of his debt. But this sinful, broken woman, who was the disrepute of the entire community, did. And here she is, offering herself to Jesus in sacrificial worship. And there's three characteristics, though, of this offering that we note here that are to inform our lives as Christians today. First is this. There's freedom from the court of human opinion. When we meet the grace of God, this is what happens. This woman was under judgment. Everyone knew who she was. Perhaps they knew her even more intimately than that. And here she enters into the religious assembly in the Pharisee's house, a woman of disrepute, a woman of the city, and she is free to dispose herself to Jesus' service. She loses self-consciousness. She's not worried about what others think of her. She's not paralyzed by the shame that has been hoisted on her by her own activity. And friends, this is what the grace of God does. It removes the weight of the burden, but it also frees us from that thing that paralyzes us and anchors us down into those perpetual cycles of behavior that we hate. And this woman's now free from that court. And she's glad to risk everything to be at the feet of Jesus. The second characteristic of this, though, is that there is a humble adoration that acknowledges Jesus' preeminence. Simon's failures were known to everyone in the room. He didn't give Jesus water to wash his hands. He didn't greet Jesus with a kiss. He didn't give him any oil to anoint his head. He had disrespected him in the most significant ways that you could in the ancient Near East. He had done these things very intentionally, proclaiming that he was Jesus' superior. But yet this woman comes and performs all these actions, not on Jesus' head, but on his feet, going to the dirtiest and lowest extremity of his body and serving him announcing his superiority, announcing his preeminence. 
And friends, she understood who, he was, who she was in the presence of. She understood something about Jesus. She had an insight, and then she humbles herself in front of him. And the final characteristic of this offering is that there is sacrifice in the service of Jesus. You note that she took an alabaster ointment, an alabaster flask and an ointment that was in it. This was most likely the perfume from her trade that was used for body and for breath. She no longer had the need of it, and she broke it over Jesus' feet. It was an act of extravagance. It was an act of sacrifice in which she took the tools of her trade and she offered them to Jesus. She pours it out on his feet. There was something sacrificial. There was something self-denying in what she was doing. She was giving herself wholly over to him. She was doing it free from the court of human opinion. She was doing it in humility. And friends, this is what it looks like when we respond to the love of God, that this sinful and broken prostitute, dirty as she is, Jesus affirms that her sins are many, that she would disciple you in the way. She would show you what it is to be authentic in responding to Jesus' great love, to the forgiveness of our debts. After my first year in seminary, I had accumulated a great deal of new vocabulary and was feeling quite hopped up on all this new knowledge that I had gained. And Melissa and I had the opportunity to travel to Africa, to Tanzania, where I was actually going to have the opportunity to roll out my new vocabulary in a sermon. I had prepared several hours for this sermon, and then on the Sunday morning when it arrived, I was sat down in the middle of a cornfield in a very humble church with about 20 African Christians sitting in front of me. I rose to the occasion to preach this grandiose sermon and totally fell on my face. <laughs> I'm not sure I've ever had one flop just quite like that. Forgot one of the points, didn't know where I was, was completely missing the audience. <laughs> it was truly a sermon more about me than about them. And I suppose your first one is. <laughs> but during the service, after the sermon, something rather phenomenal happened. They took up an offering. It's very similar to the way we do it. The ushers came down with the plates. And here I was feeling just like a complete failure. My sermon, which was supposed to be an offering to God, had just been a complete disaster. And then I began to note these 20 African Christians begin to put their offerings in the plate. And I'd never seen anything like it before. And particularly what I noticed was one man, and it was a season where there was a great drought, and he pulled out of his bag five ears of corn and put it in the offering plate. There was a little bit of money put in, but no one had a lot. And there were some other tangible items put in, and then those plates were brought back down to the front of the church placed upon the table, and the pastor gave thanks for it. For a Westerner, we could scoff at that. But the great cost that this man went to, taking five ears of corn in a season of drought where the harvest was not plentiful, and offering it to God, taking what he had and presenting it to God, 
This was symbolic of him putting himself on the offering table and in the offering plate. And it was a wonderful picture of what service to God was to look like. How to render service to God. That it was to be humble. That it was to be free from the court of human opinion, not to worry about it. And it was to be sacrificial. And that man knew what it was to be loved by God and then could freely, in the ways that he could, from the material of his own life, he could bring forward an offering without shame, full of thanksgiving. And friends, that's what Jesus is inviting you into today as well, is to know the depth of your sin and what it means to be loved by God in the midst of it, that your debt is unpayable. And then in response to that, with freedom of self from self-consciousness, that in humility and with great self-sacrifice, you give yourself freely to him. It's what the parable of the two debtors is all about. And so who do we want to be? Do we want to be the cold-hearted, judgmental, angry Pharisee? Or do you want to be like the prostitute? Let her lead you in the way. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that there's all kinds of things in us that don't like to admit our brokenness and our shame and our sinfulness. And yet you remind us this morning that we can freely confess those things, that we're debtors and that we can't pay, that our Lord Jesus has canceled the debt, that he's received it into himself in his death, that he's been judged on our behalf. Work that into our hearts that we believe and that we trust. And then may we turn around and love. Keep us from taking up Simon's example. Keep us from sinning against you in this way. And rather, with humility, in great sacrifice, in freedom from self-consciousness, may we wholly give ourselves to you. Help us. By your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.